Welcome everybody to season two of the Measured by Success Physio podcast. I'm your co-host Greg Hall and along with David McRae we're delighted to be back for a second season of the podcast and we have some brilliant guests lined up for you over the coming weeks. We're very excited to have Dr. Pete Maliaris on as our first guest this week. But before we get into today's episode, we have some exciting news as a new sponsor has joined the podcast. This episode is sponsored by Peak Force Systems. Peak Force Systems have engineered a handheld dynamometer from the bottom up for clinicians by clinicians. Their aim is to bring truly objective strength testing to your athletes and patients for less than 1% the price of an isokinetic machine and one third the price of other handheld dynamometers. With unparalleled fixation options, their products have the ability to perform over 100 strength tests quickly, accurately, and affordably, including inline quad strength and isometric mid dipole. Test, don't guess. You can view their products and find out more information at peakforcesystems.com and at peakforcesystems on Instagram. Okay, welcome back guys to episode one in season two of the Measured by Success Physio podcast. Today we are delighted to have on uh, Dr. Pete Maliaris. Um, Pete is a physiotherapist and researcher from Melbourne, Australia, specializing in tendinopathy. Um, He's an associate professor at Monash University Physiotherapy Department and also maintains a strong clinical focus, mainly seeing tendinopathy cases. Um, Pete, thanks a million for joining us on the podcast. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. Brilliant. So for those of us, um, those of our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with you, do you want to just give us a, a one or two minutes uh, introduction about yourself, your background, your, your current practice, and, and maybe a little bit about your educational roles as well and research? Sure. So basically, I have been a physio now for 23 years, and um, I uh, have sort of mixed clinical and uh, research work throughout the whole uh, time. Uh, I did my PhD coming on to maybe sort of 12 or so years ago, and um, it could be a bit longer, actually. Um, And uh, I... um, I basically uh, sort of have always been interested in, in tendons and particularly since the PhD. And uh, what I tend to do now is uh, mix research, uh, working at Monash four days a week, uh, supervising students and uh, primarily in the shoulder as well as Achilles tendon. And I also then uh, the rest of the time uh, work in a clinical practice and that's uh, pretty much one day a week where I see uh, tendon patients and do a bit of consulting for athletes and various things. Uh, but yeah, look, I, I really, um, uh, I guess, I'm you know very passionate about uh, both clinical practice and research. Evidently, for sure. Okay, so we wanted to take a little bit of an ABC approach to to tendinopathy management with you today, if that's all right. So. Um, starting with the absolute basics, can you maybe just give us an intro into, you know, really what is a tendinopathy and maybe how and why do our, our tendons develop this sort of pathology? So tendinopathy is really any uh, painful or pathological condition of the tendon. Uh, so um, it's, a very, it's a very broad term and it's um, uh, intentionally so because we... we we want to be inclusive of any 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 uh, painful or uh, pathological condition um, in in and around tendons. 
um, is sort of referred to as a tendinopathy. So it's a it's a broad term, and um, obviously there are uh, you know some very uh, hallmark features that go along with it. So for example. Uh, people often have very localised uh, symptoms. They have very, very, you know, local uh, pain. That is um, uh, one of the characteristic features of a tendinopathy. Uh, you also have load-related pain. So, uh, you know, people often have pain um, when they do active uh, activities that involve uh, high loads for the tendon. And these are usually things like, uh, running and jumping for the lower limb, even walking for the lower limb. Um, uh, they usually have a warm-up characteristic where they basically warm up with activity and they uh, and they sort of feel better and then they can be worse after activity for, for a certain period of time. Uh, so they're sort of the hallmark features, the clinical features of tendinopathy. But an actual tendinopathy is any pathology um, in and around the tendon. Um, and there are lots of diagnoses that, you know, may be sort of part of that. Uh, but clearly the most, um, uh, most, most common one affects the, uh, the tendon itself. Uh, and it's a sort of, um, uh, it's a pathology that, uh, that is specific to the tendon, which some people refer to as, you know, um, degenerative pathology or uh, there's, there's so many other terms, tendinosis. But I was part of a consensus, an international consensus recently where uh, part of the remit, uh, probably the primary remit was to uh, try and get some consensus on terminology because terminology is confusing. And if, you know, if there's young physios listening to this, um, you know, there's tendinosis and there's tendinitis and there's and there's all these terms that uh, can be sort of difficult to navigate and overlapping. Uh, the key point is if you've got a clinical uh, diagnosis, it's, it's tendinopathy. And that's the term that we use because um, it makes no inferences about what the underlying pathology is. So the underlying pathology could be anything. Uh, it could be inflammatory for all we know. It could be degenerative. Uh, like a tendinosis for all we know, uh, but it makes no inferences about that. And that's why it's such a good term, uh, tendinopathy. And you've, you've kind of touched on my next question there brilliantly. I was going to ask you about, you know, the various pathogenesis theories. Um, you know, you might have had the, the classic inflammatory one, like from back in the day, like you mentioned, and mechanical, and then, you know, Jill Cook has her continuum as well. So, uh, where do you sit in that regard into, you know, what might be the, the various causes or can it be, or, or what might be going on within the tendon, or do you think it can be a plethora of those different things altogether? Hence why we're going with, with tendinopathy and, and not specific to that. Yeah, look, it's, uh, it's, um, uh, it's a good question. There's, um, there's lots of, uh, theories out there in terms of how we sort of come about, uh, to have a tendinopathy, um, I guess I like to start with the things that we're, you know, really sure about. Um, and uh, there's not many of those, unfortunately, but uh, the things that, uh, the things that we, that we know about a tendinopathy is that there's most likely some sort of load element to it. So there's, there's most likely a, a loading element to it. And that, uh, that most likely leads to some sort of change in, in cell signaling. So there's a change in the, in the way the cells are responding 
and um, there may be even changes to the cell type uh, within the within the tendon. Um, and then there are a whole host of structural changes, like you know changes to the uh, collagen and changes to the the ground substance, which is the sort of water binding proteins. Uh, and that's where you get your increased water and you know swelling appearance. Uh, there are a whole host of, uh, of biochemical changes in the tendon, um, and um, there's also uh, possibly a um, uh, hypervascular sort of uh, um, uh, insult to the tendon because we see changes that um, uh, are indicative of a response to reduced blood flow. So, for example, uh, you know, vascularization um, is, uh, is is one of the things that we see. So, so hypervascularization yeah. later on in pathology. So, so there must be some sort of um, hypervascular environment as well. So, the the the, the, the actual pathogenesis. Uh, probably comes down to quite simply, and I think the continuum model is a nice way to describe pathology because it does talk about a cell-driven uh, response to tendon load, um, and that's a nice way to think about it for clinicians. Uh, so basically, there is a point where the loading that is applied to the tendon is beyond the point uh, that the tendon can actually tolerate. And you start to go down this uh, 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 change in cell signaling and pathology and then pain. Um, but along the way, there's lots of other theories as well. Like, this, you know, there's, there's theories about the type of forces. Is it compressive? Is it, is it shearing type forces? Is it tensile forces or a combination of these? Um, is it, uh, there's also theories about, you know, the hypervascular uh, elements to it and how important they are. Um, and we don't really know with any certainty which ones dominate and whether it's a combination, uh, as you alluded to, it, it quite possibly is a combination of you know, many factors. Uh, but that's sort of, a, you know, with, with, with clinicians, I guess it's, uh, and also with patients, um, I think it's important to keep it simple. And um, uh, the narrative that I tend to go for is, is the sort of load-induced uh, change in cell signaling? I think that's a that's a nice narrative, and it, and it tends to resonate with patients as well. Yeah, exactly. And again, nicely leading into how important do you think education is in in tendinopathy management? So when you're settled on tendinopathy as your diagnosis, and we'll we'll touch on assessment in a few minutes, but you know how how much do you emphasize that when you're your first session with somebody and you're you're getting them started on a rehab program? Yeah, I, I, I think it's uh, absolutely crucially important. So I think uh, the more I spend uh, time treating tendon patients, uh, the more I realise that uh, there's really no substitute for, you know, really, really good uh, education to um, explain to the person exactly what's happening um, with their tendon and uh, reassure them about uh, the pain and what uh, the pain actually means and uh, what what's going on in terms of pathology. Um, I think it's uh, so important to um, develop a rapport with the patient and educate them in a way that really resonates with them. Um, that's, 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 that's such an important thing. And it's, it's also such a skill as well. And um, I think something that you tend to get better at as you sort of see people. And I think it's about just getting a feel for, um, you know, a certain condition. It doesn't matter what condition you're treating. 
um, getting to the point where you feel like, you know, you can explain it in a way that uh, uh, resonates with patients and um, uh, and is easy for them to understand. Um, I think I think that's uh, that's really really important. But there are so many things to educate someone about um, in terms of you know the tendon and pathology, uh, you know pathology and pain and how they relate. Um, acceptable pain. So what is acceptable pain? Um, is it okay to feel some pain with exercise and activity? You know all the things that uh, clinicians would be doing. Uh, but conveying these in a way that really resonates with the patient, reassuring them. Um, you know, things about risk factors and metabolic involvement and uh, weight involvement, BMI, physical activity, um, education about treatments. That is really, really underrated, I think. We tend to, as physios, and I, I did a survey on this recently with rotator cuff uh, tendinopathy, uh, where we surveyed, I think it was 502 physios from around Australia uh, who treat rotator cuff tendinopathy. And we asked them about the education that they give. And most of them, um, you know, volunteered some really good stuff. Like they educate about, you know, the, the, the types of exercise available and, you know, what's happening to the tendon in, in tendinopathy. But uh, most, a majority, a uh, vast majority, didn't educate about other treatments that are available like injections and surgery. Um, and I think that's yeah. a shortcoming in our management because if we want people to be fully informed, uh, of the options to them, we've got to we've got to present them in an unbiased way. Uh, so I think that's a real key area to educate. And I think as physios, we probably don't do that enough. Um, educating about load management, so you know <clears throat> how to manage loads and how not how to progress loads, how to reduce loads that are very provocative initially. Um, so there's a there's a whole host of things that are really really important to get across and. Obviously, you're going to be hard-pressed to get all these things across in one session, especially if you've got a short session, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really important and probably comes down largely to, um, as I said, the, the person's experience, but also um, also the, um, uh, the, the rapport that you have with the patient. Pete, I was just wondering then on the topic of, of education, do you do much education around kind of prognosis or, or rehab timelines? Because one thing we know about is tendinopathy is that they can be fairly slow processes. You could be talking months rather than weeks. Uh, and mm. what, what, what sort of conversations are you having with patients on your initial assessment around how long this is going to take and what does that look like? Yeah, uh, that's also a really, really good point. Um, uh, I think uh, it's really important to set the person's expectations um, about, you know, what is, uh, what is normal and um, what uh, the likely course of this tendinopathy is going to be. Because as you say, you know, it is often drawn out and it's, um, it's important that they have a realistic uh, view of, um, you know, exactly what is to come. Um, so I like to say things like, look, it's, it's, it's probably going to take you know, if it's a chronic, uh, if it's a, if it's a chronic, probably not the best word, but if it's someone who's got, you know, a lot of pain and um, not very good function, that combination is not very good, as we know. Uh, so they've got really, you know, uh, high amounts of pain and load intolerance, and they've also at the same time got really poor function when you test them. Uh, you're sort of starting to think this is going to take a long time to really unwind. 
and um, you know you sort of want to want to give them the impression it's going to take months. Uh, so I think that's that's really really important. Um, it's also um, important to talk to them about the potential for things to go wrong uh, along the way. So the potential for them to have flare-ups and uh, that you know how it's um, you know not really a a linear path to uh, to recovery and um, I think that really, really is important. Um, and, and, and along with that <clears throat> goes the, um, goes the, uh, the regular contact. <clears throat> and that could be via telehealth. It could be via face-to-face -face consultations. Um, it could be via telephone. It could be via emails. But uh, I think it's so important to check in. I, I'm probably not as good. I, I always hear myself saying this and then think, shit, I, I should start doing it more. But uh, basically, it's uh, it's important to uh, to uh, you know to for the patient to be confident in the approach and to take it uh, and really sort of be engaged with it. So, <clears throat> and it's not an easy thing because you know we, we're sort of immersed in it every day, and then we 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 dump all this information on a patient and we expect them to go and uh, implement it. I think it's such a hard thing to do for some patients, maybe not all of them, but. Um, picking the ones that need that assistance and making sure that uh, they are, you know, you're there to support them throughout the, the journey. So you've discussed some of the kind of subjective indicators that it might be a tendon pathology or a tendinopathy. If a patient comes into you, um, what sort of objective assessment, what's your objective assessment looking like? Or what sort of key markers are you looking to obtain in that, in that first contact with the patient? So the first thing I start with from an objective point of view is uh, looking at uh, load tests to try and determine whether uh, they have any pain on uh, their load tests and whether it's a proportional pain. So <clears throat> with a tendon, uh, if you say have an Achilles uh, tendinopathy and you get them to do a calf raise, uh, they'll report, they might report a five out of 10. With a hop, they might report a, a six or seven or eight out of 10. So there should be uh, more pain with the more amount of load that goes through the tendon. Um, and also just the reproduction of pain at the tendon side is very useful diagnostically. Um, and, then it's, and then it's about um, reassuring yourself there's no other diagnosis, um, either explaining the pain or in parallel, like for example, posterior ankle impingements or um, some sort of uh, peripheral neuropathy or uh, even referred pain from more proximally. So something else going on. So you can then um, look at that. So diagnostic workup um, in the objective context is very, very important. Um, then, yeah, and as part of that, obviously, you're looking at the differential diagnosis as well. So um, with an Achilles, you've got lots of other things that can be even patella, but even gluteal and some of the other lower limb ones, there's lots of other things that can be causing it. So if you look at Achilles, you can have a sural nerve um, uh, neuropathy, you can have a paratenin problem, you can have plantaris, um, you can have posterior ankle impingement uh, or just an ankle pathology. Um, so there's a whole host of other uh, pathologies that could also be explaining it. Um, so looking at that diagnostic workup is, is very important to start with because that will, that will guide your treatment uh, one way or the other. Um, the other thing then objectively is to um, 
look at all the contributing factors from a physical point of view. And, and I guess <clears throat> physios are historically really, really good at that. Uh, that's what we focus on. Uh, and that is um, looking at um, their function. So taking them through, I can give you an example of an Achilles patient. You, you do want to get a, a good idea of how much um, uh, strength they have in their calf and in other lower limb muscles that you think might be important. So if I'm seeing a runner, for example, with an Achilles problem, I'd probably do at least one 8RM assessment of a calf strength in the first assessment, in the first session. Um, I'd probably leave a lot of the kinetic chain stuff for the next time because I like to have a lot of time for discussion, even though I see people uh, for an hour initially it's always good to spend a good 20 minutes talking to them intermittently throughout the session uh, but um, uh, yeah so so a good calf assessment um, is another objective uh, something that is really objective that you can look at and the, the benefit of that I think I think one of the things that I find is uh, teaching physios is that we probably don't are not objective enough so if you can get your hands on uh, dynamometry, force plates, um, uh, force plates sound expensive, but you can get force plates that cost, you know, 600 bucks that we use for clinical trials that do a really good job of measuring calf strength. Um, I think uh, Seth O'Neill had a similar thing recently with a physiometer or something similar that he, that he called it, uh, which is absolutely fine to use as well. But any way you can be objective in strength, I think does two things. One, gives you info about where the patient is at, and two, motivates the patient if they're weak. So if you can demonstrate to a patient that they're actually weak, uh, that is um, you know, almost guaranteed that they're gonna engage with their rehab because uh, they've seen the deficits and you've demonstrated them. So, so I think that's also an important part. Um, uh, moving on from there, uh, objectively, it's the remaining kinetic chain um, that you probably would have a look at. Uh, but as I say, it may not be in the first session that you do that um, uh, if you're going to be having time for your education and everything else. If you're looking at a, a shoulder tendinopathy, Pete, I don't know if you see much of those in clinic, but what kind of load tests and, and you know, related to what you've talked about with the Achilles there, how does that translate to the upper limb? Mm. Yeah, it's a good uh, good question. I do similar things. I see, uh, so in the clinic, I see mainly um, lower limb, and it's probably about, I'd say, 70% lower limb. But for the upper limb ones, I see very similar things. So I would do... Uh, resistant static contractions and I, I don't use dynamometry um, just because I haven't got into the habit of doing it and um, I uh, think it's fine to do if people are using dynamometry for upper limb. Um, I would tend to go more towards a 6RM or 8RM assessment similar to what I do in the, in the lower limb. Um, so it could be external rotation, it could be abduction depending on pain, it could be external rotation in certain, certain amounts of abduction. Uh, depending on their uh, where uh, their, their symptoms are. So obviously with strength testing, you don't really get a lot out of it if the person's got a lot of pain. So um, it just is going to tell you that they're weak because uh, they're inhibited by their pain. So 
Um, so basically trying to find areas that are not so painful or not painful at all and testing those to start with, just to give you some objective sign. And obviously it evolves as, as you go through. Uh, but shoulder, interesting you should ask that because shoulder is something that I'm really uh, very much uh, getting more into because uh, a lot of my research in the last probably four or five years has moved, moved towards shoulder. Um, uh, and um, so I'm starting to see a lot more in the clinic. Uh, and I wouldn't say I'm... Uh, an expert in in, in shoulder in, ter in terms of clinical management, um, but uh, starting starting to go through a similar pathway to what I did with Achilles and lower limb, um, sort of ten years ago when I you know sort of focused on those in the clinic. Um, so maybe in ten years I'll have some different ideas. I generally find that the shoulder is that little bit tougher to treat from a from a tendon perspective. They're, not that they're less painful, but there's maybe a couple more things to consider and if you have your 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 head around it and you're used to seeing a lot more of the uh the lower limb ones they can mm. generally be just a touch more straightforward mm. no i i i think that's right now, it comes down to the point i made earlier and that is there's a real trajectory of um of clinical ease or clinical comfort when you're treating something yeah. um, you start off and you think you know your treatments often are more complex than what they need to be because you're not sure. And then as you become better and better and better and better, because you see so much of one thing, you just refine it down to a uh, lot simpler treatments that are more effective. Uh, so it's interesting. And I, and I think that happens. And I think with the shoulder, I'm not quite there yet, but uh, I'm really enjoying seeing shoulders uh, again. This episode is brought to you by Peak Force Systems. Test, don't guess. Visit peakforcesystems.com and at peakforcesystems on Instagram for more information. You touched on uh, trying to get physios to be a little bit more objective uh, in their assessments, particularly with things like strength. And then you, you touched on your kind of eight and six rep max testing. So I'm sure our listeners would love to know what that looks like in a bit more detail. And obviously it might depend on what facilities and equipment you have available, but what does it look like to you if someone comes in with an Achilles problem or a shoulder problem what does that six or eight rep max testing actually look like yeah so uh i would get them up into the smith machine here in our in our in our clinic and um uh generally i'd start with seated calf raise and um get them onto the seated calf raise machine and put about um I'd, I'd probably start with about almost their body weight and maybe a bit less if they're sort of a very older sedentary or, you know, very sedentary person who might be a bit, you know, overweight. Um, but about, because you, say you've got someone 140 kilos, you wouldn't stick 130 kilos on there. But if you've got your 70 kilo runner, I'd probably start on 60 kilos, uh, do a set of single leg on each side. They should find that pretty easy. Um, working up to 1, 1.2, 1 1.3, 1 1.4 times body weight until they're maxed out for, for eight repetitions, uh, doing it slowly um, and um, basically basically in, in practice it is hard to do a proper 8RM because of time. So, you, you know, I hardly ever have time to go the four sets to really max them out it might be two sets and truncated 8RM if I'm honest generally because you just haven't got the time to go through the whole thing. 
then that will probably take you 10 minutes or so in itself whilst you give them rest and you're talking and everything else. You're doing two legs. Um, so that generally that is, uh, that's pretty much the process that I would go through for, for 8RM. And, and you can do that for, if you don't have a Smith machine, people are probably um, asking, what do you do? Uh, you basically can just do it in standing. So do it in standing and use weights and progressively get them higher. One of the, one of the real big errors that you see with, um, and this, is, this goes back to the point of knowing uh, a particular condition, um, one of the real big errors you see with Achilles is just chronic underloading. Um, the amount of times that I see people that have come in, they've been given seated calf raise, but they've been giving it, given it with, say, 10 or 15 kilos added uh, or 20 kilos, 25 kilos, which is a real, uh, you know, very, very much a fraction of their body weight. And it's not going to get anywhere near um, even the effect you can get with a single leg uh, standing calf raise, which is their body weight at least. Uh, so so that, that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, but you do see people who um, have been given that. Um, and, and even when I have students in the clinic and I stick, you know, 70 or 80 kilos in the bar and do a single leg calf raise to someone I've just met, they often just freak out and think, "Jesus, you know, is this safe?" Basically, but it, it is safe, and 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 this is sort of what you what you learn when you when you're seeing these people. It's you know that that if you're doing it slowly, you're doing it under supervision. It's unlikely to cause any problems. I think that that's a funny one. Sometimes if I'm getting people to do a single leg calf raise, calf raise to get a bit of buy-in, I'll go and grab the forty kilo dumbbell, and you could be passing it to a forty-year-old woman sitting down and you're going put this on your knee and she's thinking no way that's too big and then more often than not they can you know easily do 10 to 15 reps of it because they underestimate you know how, how probably strong their calves are so that's another great way to to get them yeah. into it um, yeah, absolutely. absolutely moving on to a bit of the rehab then pete so you're stuck into a, a bit of a rehab plan what other markers and, and you've mentioned kind of you know the strength so you're obviously going to be looking at strength improvements and you know they're pain tolerance and their load tolerance throughout the course of the rehab you know is there any other markers or indi indicators that you look for set targets to maybe specifically around some of the plyometrics and the hop tests for for a lower limb or, or anything similar in the upper limb kind of more towards that end stage rehab um it's uh it's there's probably two ways to look at it the rehab you can either look at it from a pain-based approach so purely pain um, and a lot of a lot of studies in the literature, and even some of the studies that um, our group has done, it has uh, focused on a pain-based approach. So just saying, okay, this is um, just measure how much pain they have with a calf raise. If it's not too much, then you can do it. Measure how much pain they have with hopping or plyometrics. If it's not too much, they can start it gradually. So just focusing on pain. The other the other argument is that. Um, if they don't have good strength or endurance, doing that could be provocative. And it's probably true that that is provocative. So you do want to be careful. But I think uh, it is only my, my clinical view is that it's probably only provocative once you start doing maximal type efforts. So, um, so one of my uh, clinical sort of criteria is not to do any maximal 
uh, plyometric, jumping, hopping, or near maximal efforts. Uh, and that could involve sprinting or running faster until they have developed pretty good strength. So if you see an athlete who's got a patella tendon and they have um, a, a 30 kilo 8RM on leg extension on the right leg and a 50 kilo on the left leg, you want to try and bridge that uh, deficit before you really start doing you might do some gentle, very uh, low intensity hops or jumps, but not any maximal jumping, because that's going to be a problem for that person if you start doing maximal. So, so I think I think getting 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 a grasp on how much strength they need for certain maximal or near maximal activities for their sport is probably a really good thing to do. Uh, and that is where, again, that objective measurement of strength is very important because you can then say to them, look, I know that, you know, your leg extension is getting close to the point that it needs to be at for you to get back to this jumping program. Um, I think we can start that in two weeks next time we catch up or, you know, something like that if, you, if you're sort of measuring that strength as, as they progress. Um, otherwise, you're guessing. And I think the pain-based approach is good to a certain extent, it's very clinical and doesn't require much equipment, uh, but you do have to be a little bit careful with uh, maximal uh, high-intensity plyometric jumping running. And you mentioned chronic underloading as one of, you know, a, a mistake that, that people might do when, when treating tendinopathies. Is there anything else that, you know, people who are listening should be looking out for thinking chronic underloading, what else should they be maybe looking to load more or load less or whatever comes to mind? Yep. Uh, the biggest mistake, I think, is um, inadequate uh, load management. Uh, so if you're a young physio listening to this, the key, I think, to successful management of a tendinopathy is to uh, really get the load under control uh, and the pain under control quickly. So if you've got someone that comes in and they've got a lot of pain with the activities they're doing in the clinic uh, with you, don't be afraid to reduce their load, uh, their provocative loads, even if it's walking, because uh, it will benefit them in the long term. Um, so get the load under, get the pain under control. And that often involves, you know, uh, really good load management. It's hard to do it if you don't load manage. You know, you can throw... Uh, shockwave and tape and anti-inflammatories at them but if they're still doing the provocative activities they're probably not going to settle so that you know initial load management is very important uh, the other the other thing aside from the chronic underloading is probably the progression of the uh, plyometric load uh, that we've touched on already and it is very very important to uh, get the uh, especially the athletes well primarily the athletes to um, engage and progress to a really high intensity their uh, plyometric loading. So they need to get to the point where they are replicating their training loads in that uh, in that um, uh, in that sort of tr uh, sorry their their competition loads in that training context. So for example, let's let's take a footballer um, with a patella tendon. Um, you uh, you basically need to. Um, I'm thinking of a six foot four um, <laughs> women's uh, footballer that I recently saw with patellar tendinopathy. 
Um, she's um, a ruckman. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but a ruckman is like AFL where they yeah. sort of are the ones that tap the ball out. So they're the tallest ones in the team. So they do a lot of jumping. Uh, they're jumping all the time. So, you know, this ruckman who's going to be jumping 60, 70, 80 times in a game maximally, uh, you're going to have to develop um, that amount of intensity and volume of plyometric ability and jumping ability and what is often the case is that there's no time in a sports context or all the people all the the uh the physio would just stop short at the at the loading program and not progress to that so doing a proper uh end stage rehab is also a really important thing i'm, I'm going to jump in on that because it was a question i wanted to ask you was how because obviously I'm working in elite sport, working with footballers, and when we see people, and it's primarily patella tendinopathy that we see, how do you try and manage that? Because sometimes they have a series of games that they have to be available for. The the option of kind of coming out of training or reducing their load is not going to be 100% possible, and it can be a real challenge. Um, mm. Sometimes they do have strength deficits that we can address with a loading program. And sometimes they don't. Sometimes they are already strong because they've engaged mm. in strength and conditioning programs for years. So how do you manage that higher end athlete who's already quite strong and mm. really difficult to deload because of their training schedule? I'll just be interested to hear your thoughts around that. Yeah, probably a couple of good points there. One is that um, you've raised a good point that pain and strength are not very correlated so you can have really good strength and still get a really bad tendinopathy and that you see that a lot with uh, elite sport people um, because as you say they're already doing the strengthening um, so it's really just coming down to load management a lot of the time for them uh, gradually reducing and then gradually increasing their load um, I think the first thing and, and I see athletes um, over zoom uh, that you sort of or even here, but less so these days with coronavirus. Um, you see athletes, and the first thing that I often ask them is what is possible or what's the, what's the current uh, training and playing schedule and um, how possible is it to change that and how fixed is that? Because that's, that's a very – because, I mean, regardless of what the optimal is, uh, as you say, it's hardly ever, you know, possible, that optimal – uh, deloading in, a, in, in that context. So it's just really uh, understanding what are the limitations of their load management potential and then doing whatever you can, even if, it, if that is very, very limited. Um, I do a lot of isometric loading in season. I think isometric loading has got the really interesting press over the last few years with, um, you know, very much, uh, uh, you know, this is the cure for everything. This is the cure for cancer type approach initially, and now people are saying, "Oh, this is this doesn't work. It's rubbish." Uh, but I, I think it's uh, been misunderstood uh, a little bit. Isometrics is very useful in season when you've got not not so much for short term pain benefit as Ebony Rio's initial study uh, was showing, more so for being able to load consistently without the penalty of fatigue, which is a problem for elite sport. So a lot of isometrics, you can do it every day or every second day, depending on the training of the individual athlete and depending on the response. And you can um, really uh, do a lot with that. And maybe they do one uh, heavy session a week and you see 
um, you know, as you say, you sort of see where they get to and if that's enough, um, even if they even if they do have good strength, potentially it might help their um, overall tendon, conditioning, pain, um, and you sort of, you know, you sort of try it and see. But obviously all the adjuncts as well, so shockwave therapy, um, anti-inflammatories, you know, other other medications, they might have a burst of prednisolone. Um, saw another footballer recently with, with a uh, patella tendon who, um, you know, we, we were trying uh, various things, various adjuncts with as well, like the shockwave and, and other, other things. So um, it really is uh, compromised, but, um, you know, that sort of is the situation when you're hanging on, you've got a few games to go uh, and you can't lose that player. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's sometimes important uh, for, for that, particular, that particular team. Um, and we all know what the uh, what the effects of losing players can be. You can just just look at Liverpool this season to see you know, how um, how drastic the effects of losing some of your best players can be. So team, teams are desperate to keep these players playing. Lots of things to consider there, especially when you know they might have that warm up effect as well, where you know they feel like they can get through games and they don't want to be held back as well. Um, Great advice there, Pete. Uh, you, you just mentioned there the use of adjuncts. So that was kind of in a sporting sense. Uh, where do you stand with, with those use of adjuncts in your day-to-day -day clinic population? And, you know, if you are for them, when do you advocate for them? And, you know, when do you refer on to somebody to, to help you deliver those? Yeah, uh, I think that um, adjuncts are fine. And I'm very happy to, uh, I, I'm very happy for those to be within the, uh, treatment mix of someone with a tendon problem. Um, the pre, I, I guess the, the the problem might arise when the adjuncts start to take over or are the main uh, thrust of what you know a person is doing. So uh, certainly you want to have a good overall load management and exercise approach and education approach. And then after, beyond that, uh, if you're doing the taping or the dry needling or other things, uh, for which there's not really very strong evidence either way for most of those things. Um, even the shockwave is, you know, there's a little bit of supporting evidence, but not, you know, not, not, uh, not a really convincing amount. Um, you know, that's fine. I use shockwave. The things I use a lot are, I see obviously a lot of Achilles, uh, patella. I'd use um, taping and um, and uh, heel wedges. Uh, I'd use uh, a lot of shockwave in the clinic. We've got two shockwave machines, uh, both radial shockwave. And the way I sort of sell it, I guess sell it is not a good idea. It sounds sounds wrong, sell it. But the way the way I um, uh, the way I sort of uh, tell people about it is that the, the evidence is not uh, it is not really convincing. So I think you've got to be uh, I think you've got to be honest with uh, the patients. Uh, but there's no harms, and some people do get benefit from shockwave. Uh, even if that is placebo, we don't know. But um, uh, I think it's worth trying. And that's where I sort of stand with a lot of these adjuncts. As long as they're not harmful and expensive, uh, it's, it's okay. Or even if they are expensive, if they're a real last resort, like, for example, I'll refer for, I will refer to a sports doc and some of them do do PRP or some of them do do other things. Um, and uh, I just say to the patients, look, the evidence is not great for this, but again, uh, as a last resort, you've tried everything. Um, 
you, you know, you're whatever, 10 months down the track, uh, try it. Now, it's funny. Some people have a good outcome and some don't. I'm not saying I refer a lot of people uh, go down that path, but, you know, for the handful a year that will go down that path, uh, you're sometimes surprised with the response they get. So I, I think adjuncts, we just don't know enough about them, uh, any of them, uh, and they're really there as a, uh, as a supportive thing, uh, you know, even when needed. So in summary, I suppose your, your rehab has to be uh, based almost 100% around exercise, but if somebody comes to you and they're keen to try an adjunct, you're okay to let them do it, um, essentially, much, if they yeah. want to, yeah. Pretty much. But also, adjuncts have, I think, two places. One, at the start of rehab, when someone's really painful. So that start of rehab, that first initial um, uh, phase of rehab, when they're really painful, you can't do much rehab uh, exercise-wise, then you might do a lot of, you might do manual therapy, you might do taping, you might do heel edges. Uh, and then towards the end, if they're getting stuck, uh, again, that's when you might consider the adjuncts or along the way if you're getting stuck. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, listen, Pete, we appreciate your time. Thanks a million for, for jumping on the call with us. Hopefully it'll be um, a very informative uh, listen for, for all of our listeners. No worries. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks again, guys, for tuning in to today's episode. We were delighted to have Pete on as a guest. So make sure you go and check out Pete's own podcast, Talking Tendons, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And also check out his website, www.tendinopathyrehab.com, where you can read his blog and stay up to date on all his latest courses. His lower limb tendinopathy management course is now on to the fourth edition, a brilliant course. So we'd recommend anyone who is interested in tendons to check out that. Make sure to follow today's sponsors, Peak Force Systems on Instagram at Peak Force Systems and check out their website www.peakforcesystems.com and you can also follow us on at Metrics Physio on all forms of social media. Make sure to leave us a five-star review for today's episode and subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you shortly with a new episode of the Measured by Success Physio podcast.